and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. So Karl Barth was one of the most influential theologians of the 20th century. If you studied theology, you probably heard the name. His seminal work, the commentary on the Book of Romans, departed from and shattered late 19th century and early 20th century liberalism. One of his greatest works, The Church Dogmatics, runs over 9,000 pages and may not answer, but certainly asks most of our questions regarding systematic theology, if you have any questions. <laughs> Gotta be honest. A critical thinker and a giant of a scholar, Karl Barth was an imposing figure. Now one day, I believe at the University of Chicago, this great theologian was asked by a student, Dr. Bart, in one or two sentences, what is the essence of your theology? Now Bart leaned back and maybe puffed on his pipe, and he responded, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. 9,000 pages, <laughs> summed up in this simple child's song. Do you believe this? I mean, not my story, <laughs> which is an urban legend, but probably true. But do you believe that Jesus loves you? It's easy to say yes, but much harder to live according to that yes. If God loves us, then how are we to live our lives in light of that love? Too often, much too often, our yes to the question of God loves us, when really tested, is found to be only an intellectual assent. In other words, the faith, our faith, boils down to a set of words lodged between our ears instead of a way of life lived in the light of God's love. My sisters and brothers, this ought not to be. The faith, our faith, is not a set of doctrines. It is not based upon a set of facts about Christianity or even about the Bible. The faith, our faith, is a way of life. It is a way of life that rests firmly upon the love of God. And so when storms assail your life and threaten your very existence, it is the intangible yet very, very real love of God that sustains you and gives you hope. So how do we live in light of this great love of God? The answer, by living a life of praise and thanksgiving, by adopting a rule of life that is based upon and extols the love of God. Psalm 145 gives us a window into a life of praise and thanksgiving based upon the love of God. Psalm 145 shows us three things. One, God is great. Two, God's love is great. And three, God's great love is near. These three characteristics of God and his love permeate the psalmist's call for God's people to worship. So if you want to follow along this sermon, I invite you to open your Bible to Psalm 145, 
It's found on page 491 of the Pew Bibles. While you're turning there, let me point out that Psalm 145 stands out among other psalms in that it is an acrostic. Now, what does that mean? In an acrostic psalm, each line of the poem begins with a succeeding letter of the alphabet, in this case, from Aleph to Tav. The psalmist is using this literary device for two reasons. One, to aid in memory, and two, to express completeness. Psalm 145 is a complete hymn extolling the complete love of God. It is praise and thanksgiving from A to Z, from soup to nuts. Our lives are not complete until we live a life of praise and thanksgiving that rests upon the character and love of God. First, God is great. The psalm begins, I will extol you, O God, my God and King, and bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you and praise your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised, and his greatness is unsearchable. Surely God is great, yet his greatness is not something we can quantify. We cannot put it in a box. We cannot measure it. It is beyond our ability to understand. However, and this is very important, our inability to understand should not stand in the way of our worship. We worship that which we cannot see. We praise the one whom we cannot comprehend. The church throughout the centuries has tended to get this backwards. We try to put God into a box to examine him, to get our theology right, and then and only then to worship. This is completely the reverse of a truly biblical faith. A truly biblical faith starts with worship, concedes our inability to fully understand, and then continues with worship. Our God is truly great, and his greatness is beyond our ability to understand. Therefore, the psalmist continues in verse four, one generation shall commend your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. On the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wondrous works I will meditate. They shall speak of the might of your awesome deeds, and I will declare your greatness. They shall pour forth the fame of your abundant goodness and shall sing aloud of your righteousness. While God's greatness is beyond comprehension, his works are not. God's works celebrate his abundant goodness and we appraise his greatness. God's works are the things we can grasp onto them, and through them we get a glimpse of his greatness, only a glimpse, but enough to engender a life of praise and thanksgiving. God surely is great, and his greatness is unsearchable. Through his mighty acts, we get a glimpse of that greatness, and that glimpse shows us that the greatness of God, shows us the greatness of God's love. So God is great, and now second, God's love is great. Verse 8 reads, The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. The Lord is good to all, and his mercy is over all that he has made. Abounding in steadfast love. What a wonderful word, steadfast love. The word here, chesed, means loyal love, and it has in mind themes like loyalty and faithfulness shown in actions and achievements. 
His anger is short and his compassion is long. His compassion is long and universal. He has compassion on all he has made. This certainly is a great love. Yet like the greatness of God's character, the greatness of his love is unfathomable. What does it mean to be compassionate upon all that he has made? When we try to intellectualize this, or worse, try to explain it away, we lower God's loyal love to a human level. It is no longer a love that engenders praise and worship. It becomes a particular love, leaving us doubting whether we have lost or ever were the object of God's love. Let us not limit God's love. David, our psalmist, did not. This universal love results in universal praise. Like the acrostic poem, God's love is complete, and and it results in complete praise. Verse 10, all your works shall give thanks to you, O Lord, and all your saints shall bless you. They shall speak of the glory of your kingdom and tell of your power to make known to the children of men your mighty deeds and the glorious splendor of your kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and your dominion endures throughout all generations. The Lord is faithful in all his words and is kind in all his works. The Lord upholds all who are falling and raises up all who are bowed down. The eyes of all look to you, and you give them their food in due season. You open your hand, you satisfy the desire of every living being. Can we, should we, limit God's love or the effects of that love? The psalmist tells us that God is loving to his creation. God provides for his creation, and because of that, all his works give or will give him thanks. Verse 10, when translated poetically, reads, They shall praise you, O Lord, all your works, and your loyal lovers will bless you. This word said, loyal love, is found once again. It is this time, it it describes the works that God has made. Is the psalmist implying that all of creation displays loyal love toward God? Is God's love so powerful, so great, so awesome and unsearchable that it causes all of creation to be lovers of God? I will answer that with a question. Do we dare limit the effects of God's love? God is in the saving business. If you doubt that, look at the cross. So God is great. His love is great. And thirdly, God's great love is near. The Lord is righteous in all his ways and kind in all his works. The Lord is near to all who call on him, to all who call on him in truth. He fulfills the desire of those who fear him. He also hears their cry and saves them. The Lord preserves all who love him, but all the wicked he will destroy. Righteous is the Lord in all his ways, a loyal lover in all his works. Once again, we find our word hesed, loyal love, loyalty, and faithfulness shown in actions and achievements. All that he has made, in all that he has made, God displays his loyal love. Everything around us, everything we see displays God's love. It is palpable, palpable yet unsearchable and inexplicit. The psalmist continues 
Near is the Lord to all who call, to all who call to him in truth. So this morning, remember, God is near. Yet his nearness is only apparent when we seek him in truth. This is the key. God is near. He is very near. His love permeates the world around us. However, we can only perceive his nearness when we seek him in truth. We can have our heart's desire only when we fear him. He fulfills the desire of those who fear him and also hears their cry and saves them. As I said earlier, God is in the saving business. His saving love is near. Yet only those who seek God in truth, only those who fear and love him, experience his nearness. The psalmist concludes this trophy soberly. All the wicked he will destroy. God indeed is great. His love is great. His great love is near. And we can bask in its warmth. However, the fire of God's love is a consuming fire. This is not a warning to the wicked. It is not a cry to the sinner. Rather, it is a sober reminder to the faithful. The psalmist concludes, my mouth will speak the praise of the Lord and let all flesh bless his holy name forever and ever. Once again, the psalmist extols the greatness of the Lord and the fact that all flesh will bless him. God is great, God's love is great, and God's great love is near. And we have a responsibility in regard to that love. Once again, because God and his love are unsearchable and inexplainable, we must not limit God or his love. We must not view the faith, our faith, as a set of doctrinal principles upon which our salvation rests, but rather we should live out the faith, our faith, in light of God's greatness and love. We live into our baptism. We live into our inclusion into Christ, a mutual indwelling that is only possible through the love and greatness of God. We should be living lives of praise and thanksgiving, and our lives should be so permeated by the love of God and the nearness of that love that we become a biblically inclusive people. Ooh, I used a bad word, inclusive. Well, let's rescue that word. Let's take it back. Let's truly show the inclusive love of God. The way we show that is by speaking the truth in love. Let us take back that word and let us show the entire world that God loves them, loves them so much that he sent his only son, loves them so much that he wants a relationship with them, loves them so much that he will include them into the death, burial, resurrection, ascension of Christ through their baptism. We are called to be stewards of God's love not as stingy misers doling out God's love to those whom we think deserve it. On the contrary, we are called to be lavish with the love shown to us. God's love is huge. One might say universal. Let us be heralds of that love. Let us live lives of praise and thanksgiving. Let us show the world that God's love is near so that they too may bless his holy name forever and ever. Amen.